Good morning, everybody, and uh, great to have you here this Mother's Day weekend. We're really excited to have you here, and of course, congratulations to all those families who just had a chance to dedicate their kids. It's a wonderful thing, and we're uh, glad to be uh, part of that together. It's great. Hey, my name's Tony. I'm uh, one of the pastors here on staff at Grace Church. I'm actually the campus pastor here at the Medina East Campus, and so if we've, if we've never had a chance to meet, and so if it's your first time out here, I would love to do that. I'd love to get a chance to hear your story, get a chance to hear how you got here, and so please, if you have a chance, I know everyone's got Mother, Mother's Day plans, but please catch me uh, on your way out in the cafe. We'd love to, to get a chance to, to hear a little bit about you. Uh, but if you are a guest, I do just want to say, I think uh, that you came on a great weekend. And, uh, and the reason I say that is, uh, is of course, every weekend's a great weekend uh, to come. But this weekend specifically, because today we're beginning a brand new conversation that we are going to be in for the next six weeks. And so uh, basically today we're starting a new sermon series uh, that we are calling Winning the Battle Within. And like I said, this is a conversation that we're going to be journeying through together for the next six weeks. And, uh, and so let me just kind of kind of tell you a little bit about the topic that we're going to be talking about, kind of tee up the conversation and explain to you what it is that we're going to be sort of processing through for the next six weeks. But before I do that, I do just want to encourage you, just right from the very beginning, if you would, why don't you grab your Bible? Okay, so get a Bible if you, if you got one. If you don't have one, you can grab one of our Bibles that are under the chairs. And why don't we turn together to Genesis 37, okay? So as we begin this conversation, we're going to be in for the next six weeks. We're going to first start by anchoring ourselves here in Genesis 37. So grab your Bibles, get there. Genesis 37, if you are using one of our Bibles, page 27 is where you're going to find Genesis chapter 37. And then let me also say uh, that if you do not own a physical copy of the Bible, we'd actually really love for you to have one. So you can take one of our Bibles, make that a gift from us to you. Or if your mom doesn't have a Bible and you don't have a Mother's Day gift yet, take one and wrap it. There you go. We got you, we got you covered. So that's great. But Genesis 37... Uh, go ahead and get there. We'll meet you, we'll meet you there. Uh, now, as you're finding Genesis 37, uh, let me kind of tee up our conversation this way. So uh, by quick show of hands, how many of you have heard the phrase, the, it's, I think it's somewhat of a somewhat common phrase, how many of you have heard the phrase before that you can either be a thermostat or a thermometer? Have you ever heard that before? Okay, a few of us in this room maybe have heard that. So I don't know uh, where this originated from or who coined this phrase, but it's really kind of an interesting idea. And here, here's the, 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 the big idea. Basically, what this idea, are you a thermostat or a thermometer, what that's referring to is that as it relates to the circumstances of life, right, as it relates to how we respond to, how we navigate through, how we react to the circumstances of life, there's really two ways you can do that, right? You can either do that like a thermostat or you could do that like a thermometer. And so uh, I think all of us probably know the difference between those two things, but for the sake of analogy, let's just think about it for a second. So a thermometer, all of us kind of know how a thermometer works, right? A thermometer is a device that is created in such a way that it always is influenced by its external circumstances, right? A thermometer is an instrument that is designed in such a way, it's created in such a way that it always, always, always reflects whatever the climate, whatever the atmosphere, whatever the temperature is around it, right? So, so if it's cold outside, the thermometer is going to reflect that on the inside. That's the way that it's designed to work. And of course, if it's hot outside, the thermometer is going to shift and change and fluctuate so that it can reflect whatever the external climate around it is. And so uh, thermometers fluctuate a lot. 
uh, especially if you live in Northeast Ohio, they fluctuate a ton. So my wife and I uh, actually have a thermometer, sits on our back patio, and uh, that thing, especially in the month of April, man, that thing gets a workout, right? And it's up and down, and one day it's 80, and the next day it's snowing, and so that thing is reflecting whatever the external climate or atmosphere is. Now, a thermostat, on the other hand, and all of us sort of understand this, a thermostat is different because it's designed differently, and the way a thermostat works is that it does not fluctuate. By design, it does not, right? Uh, the way a thermostat works is it reflects a predetermined number, a predetermined temperature, a predetermined climate, no matter what is happening outside, right? So whether it's freezing cold, blizzard snow outside, whether it's scorching hot, blazing, you know, whatever outside, a thermometer is going to keep everything inside a consistent temperature, a predetermined fixed temperature. And so the question that people ask sometimes is, as it relates to uh, your life and how you navigate through the circumstances of life, do you tend to be more like a thermometer or do you tend to be more like a thermostat, right? So are you more of like a thermometer person? Are you the kind of person who your external circumstances tend to determine and tend to define who you are and how you are, right? So are you the kind of person who, who whatever is happening outside of you tends to determine who you're going to be. And so, and so when I am with the people at work, I am going to reflect the value system, the convictions, the character, the thought processes, the speech patterns, the humor of those people that I work with. And then, of course, when I'm with my family, so let's say you got some family get-together, I'm going to kind of shift with that environment, and I'm going to change a little bit, and I'm going to reflect the values and the convictions and the thought processes and the humor and the language of those people. Then when I'm at church... I'm a church, well, now I'm going to be a church person. I got that. So, so are you a thermometer person where your external circumstances determine who you are and your external circumstances define how you are? So if I said, hey, how are you doing? Uh, you, would, you would look at your external circumstances as uh, the definitive way of, under, of kind of determining how you're doing, right? So how are you doing? Well, if things are going good, well, then I'm doing good, right? So, man, the Cavs beat the Celtics. I'm doing great. Doing great. Now, if the Cavs lose to the Celtics, which let's not mention that, it's not possible, not going to happen, right? But if that happens, well, I'm doing terrible, right? That, that whatever's happening outside of me determines who I am and how I am. And so if things are going good, things are going good. If things are going bad, things are going bad. Or are you the kind of person that's more like a thermostat, right? A thermostat, meaning this, that regardless of what's happening around you, regardless of what your external circumstances might be, regardless of who you're with, right, whether it's your family or work or church, that you're the same, that what's happening on the inside, your convictions and your character remain strong and remain consistent even in ever-changing external circumstances. So, so here's the thing. Here's what we're going to be talking about in this series. If you can get your mind around that idea, uh, the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer, Here's what we're going to be navigating through the, in this series, okay? Now, I think, and this, I think all of, all of us would probably agree with this, is that if you've lived any amount of life, all of us understand that life is comprised of a variety of external circumstances, right? The, the, the circumstances of life ebb and flow and rise and fall as dramatically as the temperature in Northeast Ohio, Right? We're going to go through good times and bad times and hard times and easy times and stressful times and peaceful times. And, and the external circumstances of our life are going to shift quite a bit. They're going to vary and fluctuate quite a bit. 
But here's what I've discovered, and my guess is you maybe have discovered as well, that if we are thermometer people, right, that is that if who we are and how we are is determined and defined by our external circumstances, well, then we are subject to being controlled by our circumstances. That we are, so we are subject to being blown and tossed to whatever is happening outside of us. However, if we can be people who are uh, thermostat people, if, if our character and our convictions can remain the same, regardless of what's happening around us, that that actually anchors us in a stronger reality. So the real battle then is not a battle without, it's not a battle of external circumstances, it's actually a deeper battle, it is a battle that happens within. So here's what we're going to do in this series. I'm actually really excited about this. For the next six weeks, so this is the first week and then five weeks after this, what we're going to do together is we're actually going to journey through a very, very, very uh, kind of popular story in the Bible, a well-known story about a guy named Joseph. And so we're going to be spending the next six weeks really digging into uh, his story. Uh, My guess is if you're a Bible person or you're a church person, you've probably spent some amount of time reading the book of Joseph or reading the story of Joseph or maybe you've studied him or heard of him before but basically the story of Joseph is the story of a guy who personifies a thermostat i mean in his story you're going to watch his external circumstances change and shift and vary he's going to go through turbulent times massive storms in his life and yet through the whole thing you and i are going to see Joseph remain consistent and steady in his character and his convictions And the question that we're going to ask ourselves through this series is, how did he do it? How did he do it? And how do we do it? How do we become people like that? How do we remain strong in that? So today, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 37, because that is where our story begins, where the story of Joseph begins. This is in Genesis chapter 37. Now, before we jump in, we're going to start in verse 2. Let me just, uh, I don't know if if I can say this enough, how excited I am for uh, the next, next five weeks, six weeks that we have in this series together. I'm so excited. And part of the reason I'm so excited is because this story, this narrative of Joseph is just absolutely phenomenal. It is just one of the coolest, coolest, coolest narratives in all of scripture. But the other reason I'm so excited about this, and I think that this series is so important, is so important. I think this series is so important because I, I believe the Bible thinks this story is very important. Uh, Here's what I mean by that. I don't know if you know this, um, but the book of Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible, which is where we find the story of Joseph, the book of Genesis is 50 chapters long. It's 50 chapters long. And of those 50 chapters, 13 of them, from chapter 37 to chapter 50, are dedicated to the narrative of the story of Joseph. Now, just to give you some sense of perspective, uh, that is about a quarter of the book of Genesis, that is devoted to telling this guy's story, the story of Joseph. Now, again, just to, to kind of give you some sense of scale, there are two chapters in the book of Genesis that are dedicated to the creation of the universe. And there are 13 chapters dedicated to the story of one guy, this dude Joseph, all right? And so what I'm saying is, I think the author is telling us something. See, it's funny because a lot of people get in arguments and debates about those first two chapters. I think the author really wants us to focus our attention on the 13 chapters of the story of this guy, Joseph. So I believe God has something for us important that he wants to tell us through this story. So let's see what it says. We're going to start off in chapter 37. Our story begins in verse 2. Here we go. 
This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. All right, so let's just go ahead and pause here for a minute, and let me give you a little bit of background on this guy, Joseph. I think in verse 2, there's actually a bunch of things in here that kind of give us um, kind of a hint of, of what Joseph's background is. So let's just kind of look at that. So first off, I want you to notice, when we first meet Joseph, when we're first introduced to him, he's 17 years old. So he's a young man, 17-year-old young guy, when we first meet Joseph. Now, by the way, <clears throat> by the time we're done in Genesis 50, uh, we're going to go all through Joseph's life. So we're introduced to him when he's just a young man. The other thing you'll notice, the Bible tells us, is that Joseph, uh, his dad was a guy named Jacob. Okay, so he was Jacob's son. Now, if you are a Bible person, you might know this, uh, Jacob's actually a pretty famous guy in the Bible. And the reason he's, he's famous is because of the family lineage in which he belongs to. So Jacob was the son of a guy named Isaac, Isaac was the son of a guy named Abraham. And so Abraham, my guess is, even if you're not a church person or a Bible person or a religious person, you probably have heard the name Abraham before. He's a pretty famous guy. And so this is the same family uh, as, as uh, Abraham. So Joseph is Jacob's son. And then the other thing we find out real early on in this story is that Joseph comes from a blended family. So you'll probably notice here, Joseph comes from a pretty mixed, pretty blended family. The Bible says that he has brothers. We're actually going to come to find out Joseph has 11 brothers. So he has 10 older brothers and he has one younger brother. Joseph is the second youngest. And what you'll notice is that Joseph's brothers all come from different moms. And so here, the Bible explains that, uh, that a couple of Jacob's wives were Bilhah and Zilpah. We also know, if you read in other places of the Bible, that Jacob had two additional wives. So he had another wife named Leah and another wife named Rachel. So there was four moms from all of these brothers. I don't know how Mother's Day looked in their family. It's probably super complicated. I don't know how all that worked. But, but what you're going to see is this is a mixed and blended family. And as many of you can imagine, uh, this led to some pretty severe family dysfunction. Joseph came from a pretty dysfunctional family. You're going to see that kind of panning out through the rest of the story as we go through it. Now, I want you to notice the first thing the Bible tells us about Joseph, the first thing we find him doing is this. The Bible says the first thing Joseph did, at least in this story, is that he was found bringing a bad report to their father about his brothers. So the first thing we see about Joseph, he's a 17-year-old guy. He's got 10 older brothers. And the first thing he's doing is he's telling on them. So he's, he's, he's tattling, he's a snitch. So this is kind of how this story starts with Joseph. And watch this, verse three. Now Israel, uh, Israel, by the way, was another name for Jacob, so that's Joseph's dad. Now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. Okay, so again, here the Bible is gonna kind of zoom in a little bit. It's gonna tell us a little bit of what's happening as far as the dysfunction, where some of the family dysfunction is coming from. And the Bible tells us here that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. That is that uh, Joseph's father favored him, loved him more than he loved the other brothers. And by the way, this favoritism that Jacob showed to Joseph, this wasn't concealed, okay? Everybody knew this. It was public knowledge to everyone in the family that Joseph was the favorite. In fact, 
The Bible tells us that Jacob would outwardly do things to express his favoritism to his son Joseph. So he wasn't trying to hide it. In fact, one of the things that he did, you notice, is he made this ornate robe for him. He made this ornate robe. Some of you might have um, some different translations, and it might say a finely ornamented robe. That's what it might say. It might say a robe of many colors. That's what your translation might say. In fact, here's the thing. My guess is, even if you're not a Bible person and maybe you don't know much about Joseph, if you know anything about Joseph, this is probably the one thing you do know, thanks to Broadway, is that Joseph had an amazing technicolor, tell me, dream coat, right? That's what we know, thanks to Broadway. And what that's referring to, by the way, the Broadway uh, musical, is it's referring to this ornate robe that he wore. Now, let me just talk about this robe for a second, because there's some significance uh, behind this. Little known fact, we actually don't know if the robe was colorful or not. So if you go back into the original language, the, the, uh, the Hebrew language in which the Old Testament was written, you will find that the word uh, doesn't really say colorful. It literally means rich, long robe. That's what it means. It literally means a robe that went down to the palm of your hand or to the heel of your foot. So think of like a Snuggie, right? And that's kind of like a richly ornamented Snuggie. Now, here's why that's significant, all right? So back in this time, a richly ornamented robe like that would have been a symbol of dignity. Uh, it would have been a symbol of wealth. It would have been a symbol of authority. So if you think about it for a minute, if you're a blue-collar worker, there is no practical use for a robe like this, right? You can't get your hands dirty. You can't move freely. You can't run in a robe like this. And so if you were a person who was wearing a finely ornamented, rich robe, it was a sign of authority. It was a sign of dignity. It was a sign of honor. And so when, jo when Joseph's dad gives him this robe, it's more than just like a nice present. It's actually a declaration of superiority over Joseph, over his brothers. So because of that, look at verse four. When his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. So his brothers hated him. They could not speak a kind word to him. His brothers just hated Joseph. Verse five, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. So the Bible says Joseph's brothers hated him. And then he went and he had this dream. And as a result of this dream, his brothers hated him even more. To which you might be thinking, well, what was, what was the dream? Well, it actually says, watch this. He said to them, Joseph said to his brothers, listen to this dream I had. We were all binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and it stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and they bowed down to it. So Joseph has this dream, right? And the dream is that him and his brothers are out in the field. They all have a sheaf of grain and suddenly his sheaf like grows real big and all the other ones bow down to his. And so look at this. His brother said to him, you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of the dream that he had said. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, my first thought was, man, this guy must have had no social awareness whatsoever. Because let's just review the facts, all right? Joseph's 17, right? He's got 10 older brothers. He's a tattletale. We saw that, right? Told, he's given his dad a bad report. He's got this richly ornate robe, which is a continual reminder of their father's favoritism towards him. He was daddy's favorite. And on top of that, his brothers already hated him. So then Joseph has this dream, right? And in this dream, his brothers are bowing down to him. And Joseph decides that who he should tell this dream to is to his brothers. 
who hate him. So he wakes up, he's like, oh, that was a weird dream. <laughs> you know who I should tell? My brothers who hate me. That's a great idea. So he probably goes out to him. He's like, hey, guys, I had this dream. You want to hear about it? They're probably like, no, we don't want to hear anything you have to say. And he's probably like, cool, here's what happened. You guys all bowed down to me. Isn't that the wildest dream? And they all, look at this. The Bible says they hated him. All of them. I'm just saying, you got a dream like that, and your brother, you keep that to yourself. He went and he told them. The brothers hated him all the more. Now, I don't know if you noticed this. This is kind of, kind of significant. Third time now, third time, in eight short verses, the Bible tells us the brothers hated him. The brothers hated him, and they hated him all the more. And the author is trying to set this up for us. There is a growing hatred and a growing tension. It's like a storm that is churning. And some of you, if you've read this story, you might know what happens next. From verse 9 down to verse 17, the Bible says that Joseph goes on, has another dream. He has another dream, very similar to the first one. Tells his brothers, not a good idea. And then after that, the Bible says that um, Joseph's brothers are out tending the flock far away from home. And Jacob sends Joseph to go check on his brothers. And so by the time we get to verse 17, this is the first time now in this entire story that we're gonna find Joseph alone with his brothers who hate him without their dad around. So let's see what happens. Verse 17. So Joseph went after his brothers and he found them in Dothan. So real quick, Dothan was far out of town from where Joseph was from. So they're, they're out of town, out of town. Nobody's watching. Dad's not around, right? And the Bible says they saw him in the distance. Now, it's kind of interesting. How did they know it was him, right? They're out of town. They see someone coming from a distance. And they knew it was Joseph. Well, I think the reason they knew it was him was probably because of that richly ornamented robe, right? If it was multicolored, he probably looked like a walking pinata or something like that. So they're like, there's Joseph, obviously, walking towards us. I want you to notice this, though. The Bible says that from the time they spotted him in the distance to the time it took to, for him to get within earshot of where they were, that in that span of time, which I don't know how much time that is. I mean, what do you think? 20 minutes, maybe? Maybe? 10 minutes? In that span of time, look at this, they plotted to kill him. So in that small amount of time, I don't even know how a conversation like that looks, that they saw their brother, these 10 brothers, within the span of time it took Joseph to walk from the distance to where they were, they had agreed and they had plotted out the murder of their brother. How does a conversation like that go down? They see Joseph, oh, there he is, I hate that guy. Oh, I can't stand him. Man, is he annoying, yeah. And one of them's like, you know what we should do? We should kill him. And the rest of them are like, that sounds like a good plan. I was thinking the same thing. And they all look, I'm just, I'm just saying this. You think your family's dysfunctional. You think that your sibling rivalry is heated. This is like a whole other level. So the Bible says these guys plotted to murder Joseph. In fact, it gives us a little bit of insight into their conversation. Verse 19, what they said is, here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, come now, let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of these cisterns and then say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So here's their plan. They plot it out. They say, Joseph's coming. We see him, right? It's like a walking pinata in the distance. And when he gets here, what we'll do is we'll kill him. We'll throw his body in a cistern. And some of you might know what a cistern is. A cistern is kind of like a big well. Um, uh, in this region of the world, uh, back in this time, uh, cisterns were pretty common. They could be as deep as 10, 15, even as deep as 20, 20 feet deep. 
So their plan was, let's kill him, let's throw him in a cistern, let's tell dad a ferocious animal attacked him, and then we're going to be done with this guy. And so that was their plan. They were plotting to kill their brother. Until, verse 21, Reuben steps in. So when Reuben heard this, now by the way, Reuben is the oldest of the 12 brothers. He's, he's the oldest of the crew. So Reuben steps in, and he tried to rescue him from their hands. So the Bible actually gives a shout out to Reuben. They're like, okay, all the brothers were trying to kill Joseph, but Reuben was actually pretty cool. Reuben was, was actually pretty cool about it because here's what Reuben did. He said, let's not take his life. Let's not kill him, guys. Let's not kill him. He said, don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here into the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and then to take him back to his father. So Reuben basically said, guys, let's not kill him. Instead, let's throw him in this cistern. We'll leave him for dead. Everyone will be cool. And then Reuben secretly was thinking he was gonna come back and rescue Joseph. And so apparently the brothers thought this was an okay plan because that's what they ended up doing. If you look at the next verse, verse 23. So Joseph came to his brothers and they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. You notice the first thing they did when they got their hands on Joseph is they ripped that robe off of him. Those brothers probably hated that robe. That, that robe was a perpetual reminder to them of their father's favoritism. And so, man, they, they ripped it off of him. The Bible says they took him, they threw him into the cistern, and the cistern was empty, there was no water. And so they throw him into this pit, like I said, maybe 10, 15, possibly 20 feet deep. They throw their brother in, presumably to leave him for dead. And then watch this next thing, verse 25. As they sat down to eat their meal. Right, can we just pause there for a second and just highlight this? As they sat down to eat their meal. How savage is this? All right, so get this. They just, their brother, just, they just took the robe off their brother, right? They just threw him into a cistern. They just threw their brother into a cistern, presumably to leave him dead. And the very next thing they do, in the next verse, the next moment, after, after they throw their brother in a cistern, they're like, you know what? Lunch. Lunch. I'm feeling lunch. You guys feeling lunch? Man, I'll tell you what, all this plot and murder, all this torturing our brother. You know, Reuben was just talking. I was just thinking, boy, Reuben sounds good, you know? So I was thinking maybe we could just grab a sandwich, right? So how heartless is this? They sit down, they're eating lunch, I guess. That's what you do after you try to murder your brother. And then watch this. They looked up, saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take, uh, to take them down to Egypt. So uh, real quick on this, Egypt back in that time was kind of like the, the superpower of the world. Uh, it was like the big city. And so <clears throat> if anyone wanted to, uh, to make money, buy, sell, trade goods, they would oftentimes go down to Egypt to do that. It was a very normal thing. So the Bible says that there was this caravan that was going down to do just that. They were going down to do business in Egypt. And so when the brothers saw this caravan going by, uh, they actually saw an opportunity. So look, look what one of the brothers suggests. So Judah, Judah, by the way, was one of, the, one of the brothers, somewhere in the middle, line up there. Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and we cover up his blood? So come on now, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. It's our own flesh and blood. And those brothers agreed. So they're all sitting there eating lunch after they threw their brother in a pit. And this caravan goes by and Judah sees it and he's got an idea. He says to his brothers, he goes, hey guys, what do we profit if we kill our brother? We don't get anything out of that. 
So then, he, so then all of a sudden, well, apparently, he has some kind of wave of mercy. He's like, come on, we shouldn't kill him. After all, guys, he's our brother. He's our own flesh and blood. Let's not kill him. We couldn't. What were we thinking? He's our brother. We shouldn't kill him. He says, you know what, instead? Let's sell him. Let's sell him into slavery. And so all the brothers, this is crazy. The brothers all agree. They're all like, mm-hmm, great idea. Good plan. Sounds legit. And so, of course, this is what happens. Verse 28, when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit. Now look at this. Pull him out of cistern. And they sold him. I just, let this sink in for a second. His brothers sold him. Can you imagine, just for a moment, the psychological trauma that that would introduce in the life of a person? 17-year-old guy. His brothers tried to kill him, and now they are selling him, selling him. 20 shekels of silver. And by the way, 20 shekels of silver is not a small amount of money. It's about two years' worth of wages. So the brothers would align their pockets in this, this whole deal. And so the Bible says their brothers sold him. In the meantime, Joseph then is sold as a slave into a different country that speaks a different language, into a different kingdom, away from his family, and everything in his life utterly is turned upside down. Listen, if you've ever read the story of Joseph, you probably know how chapter 37 ends. What happens next is Joseph's brothers go back to their father. They convince him that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. Uh, Jacob believes them. He mourns the death of his son. Meanwhile, Joseph goes into Egypt. He gets sold into the house of a guy named Potiphar, and he is a slave in his house. And that is how Genesis 37 ends. And that is where Joseph's story ends begins. Now pause for a moment. Let me ask you a question. Genesis 37, abandoned, sold by his brothers, rejected, abused, right? Um, tortured. All of this, are, what, a loving, what a loving God who loves someone, has a purpose for them, cares for them, and wants the best for them. Would he really allow something like this to happen to somebody? Would a loving God who really cares about you, would he really let someone be sold, rejected, dealt severe injustice? Would they really allow this to happen? See, all of a sudden, when we read Genesis 37, we are confronted with an age-old tension, a tension that I think every human experiences at one point or another. Would a loving God allow this to happen? How could a loving God allow this to happen. You see, I think by the time we get to the end of Genesis chapter 37, we as the reader are left asking a really pressing question. And here's the question we're left asking. What is Joseph gonna do? How is he gonna respond? How is he going to react to these external circumstances? What's he gonna do now? See, because here's what I believe. I believe that right now at the end of Genesis chapter 37, Joseph has a fork in the road and there's two ways that he can respond to what's going on to him right now, right? There are two things, two paths he can take, two reactions, two responses. And the first one is this, is Joseph going to be a thermometer? Is he going to be? In other words, is Joseph gonna be the kind of guy where his circumstances are now going to define him and they're going to defeat him. Is that what's gonna happen? 
right? Is Joseph gonna be a man from this point forward who's going to choose to define himself by bitterness and resentment and vengeance towards his brother? Is that what he's gonna do? That'd be real easy to do. Is he gonna be the kind of person who defines himself from this point forward as a victim? Man, I'm a victim. You don't understand what I went through. The reason I do the things I do, I act the way I act is because of what happened to me. If you knew what happened in my circumstances are what define me, you could go that route. Are his circumstances going to defeat him? Are they going to defeat his convictions? Are they going to defeat his faith? So the one thing uh, that we're going to find out about Joseph, by the way, in this story, some of you might know this already, Joseph um, is a man of conviction. Joseph is a man who believes that God is with him. He believes that God loves him. He believes that God has a plan for him. But listen, in Genesis 37, every external circumstance that he faces says exactly the opposite. So what's he gonna do? Is he gonna abandon his faith? Is he going to abandon his convictions? In fact, I don't know if you know this. I thought this was really interesting. Commentators point out that throughout, the chap- throughout chapter 37, I don't know if you noticed this, but throughout Genesis chapter 37, there is absolutely no mention of God at all. God is never mentioned once in Genesis 37. Not a character never mentions him. A character never brings him up. God never acts. God never speaks. God never intervenes. God never shows up once. And commentators speculate that that's actually intentional. And the reason is, I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find another chapter in the Bible where God is not mentioned. But commentators believe that the author did that on purpose to help us as the reader feel what Joseph must have been feeling. See, because you gotta understand this. For Joseph, it wasn't just difficult for him to see the purposes of God in what he was going through. It was impossible. There's no way he could have known what God had in mind through what he was going. He could not see God's purposes. The question is, what's he gonna do, man? Is he gonna be defined and defeated by his circumstances or, or, Is he going to respond differently where his character and his convictions and his faith remain strong even in the midst of turbulent circumstances that are pressing in on him? See, here's the thing. I believe that each and every single one of us, we're talking about Joseph. Let's talk about us for a minute. I think that every single one of us face the exact same fork in the road decision that when circumstances of life press in on us, When circumstances shake us, I think we have the same type of decision that we have to confront. Are we going to allow our circumstances to define us and defeat us, to determine who we are and to determine how we are? Or are we gonna be thermostats? Are we gonna be people who our character and our, our convictions and our faith remain strong regardless of what's happening around us, regardless of who is around us, regardless of what is crashing in on me? See, because here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that most of us in this room, if we're just being honest, most of us have experienced Genesis 37 circumstances at one point or another. Maybe even right now, you're experiencing Genesis 37 circumstances. And maybe not to his extent, maybe not as severe as what he faced, but my guess is, I think many of us can relate to the fact that there have been times in our life where God's purposes have not only been difficult to see, they have been impossible to see. And everything outside of me is challenging and pressing in on my character and on my convictions and on my faith. And the question is, what are you gonna do in times like that? What are you gonna do in times like that? Are you gonna be defined and determined by your circumstances and defeated by them? Or is your character and your convictions gonna rise through those things? Are you going to be a thermometer? 
or are you going to be a thermostat? I love the way that uh, Chuck Swindoll put it. Chuck Swindoll is an author and a pastor and uh, um, a preacher. And he said something I thought was really powerful one time. So what he said, he said, I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me. It's 90% how I react to it. He said, I'm convinced. The more, more I go through life, I'm convinced that life is 10% external circumstances that happen around me. It is 90% what happens inside. 90% how I respond, how I react, right? And I think what Chuck Swindoll is saying is this. The real battle, the real battle is not outside. The real battle is not without. The real battle is within. It's a battle to remain strong in my convictions and in my faith and in my character, even when circumstances change. Now, spoiler alert, <laughs> real quick. If you've never read the story of Joseph, I'm going to tell you a little bit of how the story goes. But what we're going to find, um, and it's probably not a surprise to you, is that Joseph is a man who overcomes his circumstances. He is not defined and he is not defeated by his circumstances, but instead his convictions and his character remain solid through the whole thing. I just got to tell you, what we're going to find in this story is you're going to see Joseph go from being dealt severe injustice, and rather than using that injustice as a way to define him as a victim or as a way to define him as, you know, with vengeance and bitterness, we're going to watch Joseph go to a place where he meets his brothers again, and he's going to forgive them. We're going to watch Joseph uh, uh, confronted with his brothers and we're going to watch him, the same brothers who sold him, we're going to watch Joseph choose to save them. We're going to watch Joseph go from uh, this place of abandonment, eventually going into a place where he's sold into slavery, and yet he's going to remain his convictions, he's going to remain to his character, those are going to stay strong. We're going to watch Joseph go to a place where he experiences unbelievable temptation, sexual temptation. And yet, even in the midst of it, his character and his convictions remain strong. Then we're going to watch Joseph falsely accused and thrown in prison. And Joseph gets dealt a bad hand, all right? And we're going to watch him in prison. And when he's in prison, we're going to watch that even those external circumstances do not shake who he is at his court. And then, and then we're going to watch Joseph ascend. And he's going to become the second most powerful person in the known world at that time, more affluence, more wealth, more power than any of us could ever imagine. And through it all, whether highs or lows, he remains consistent and strong. The question is, how did he do it? How do we do it? How do we become people with thermostats and not just thermometers? So let me tell you what we're gonna do for the next several weeks. I'm really excited. For the next five weeks that we have left, we're gonna journey through the rest of this story. We're gonna kind of take it a chapter at a time and a couple chapters at a time, sort of journey through the story of Joseph. And here's what we're gonna find. As we go through the story, what you're gonna find is each chapter, there's a different set of circumstances. So you open up a new chapter of Joseph's story, there's a new set of circumstances and they're crazy and they're turbulent and they're all over the place. And you get to the next chapter and there's a new set of circumstances and it's crazy and it's turbulent and it's all over the place. And throughout this whole story, what you're gonna find is that sprinkled throughout the narrative, there are these little verses that are sprinkled in there, just one or two verses at a time that give us a window into what's going on on the inside of Joseph. We're going to see everything that's happened on the outside, all the external circumstances, but then every once in a while, we're going to get a glimpse. What's going on inside of him? How is he looking at what he's going through? And I believe that Joseph's perspectives give incredible power for us to know how we can win the battle within. So for the next five weeks, what we're going to do, journey through this story, we're going to look at five internal perspectives. Joseph is going to show us five internal perspectives 
that I believe can fortify us even in the midst of fluctuating circumstances. Excited to go through those things together. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and as the band makes their way up to the platform, as, before we close in prayer, um, let me just kind of mention a couple quick challenges okay, as we go through this series. Like I said, this is the first week in this series, so it's more of an introduction. But um, as we go from here, here's, my, here's a couple challenges. The first one is this. I want to challenge you, whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're investigating Jesus, whether you attend here or maybe you don't attend here or whatever, I actually want to challenge you, if you would, to lock in for the duration of this series, the next five weeks. And here's why. I genuinely believe that this narrative, the story of Joseph, that you, if you would allow it to work inside of your heart, that if you would listen and if you would engage with it, that it has the power, it really does, to change the way that you view your life, to change the way you view the circumstances that you are in right now. I believe that God has preserved this and has dedicated 13 chapters to this for a reason. And if you'd allow the narrative to, I believe it could really work itself deep into your heart. So I'd encourage you to lock in for that. And then here's the second thing. I actually would encourage you to familiarize yourself with the story. So some of you maybe have read it in the past, or maybe it's been a while. Some of you maybe have never read the story of Joseph, and I want to encourage you to familiarize yourself with it. And so each week, uh, there's actually a reading plan that's connected and associated to the series. You can actually get this reading plan on the app. So if you download the Grace Church app, uh, the reading plan is right there on the app. So you, you can just you know you can access your Bible through the app, all that kind of thing. You can also get this reading plan at our Welcome Center. But basically, uh, it's a breakdown of the chapters that we're going to be reading. And I would encourage you to read those chapters. So it's really just a couple chapters a week uh, that, that we're asking you to read. But I want you to get familiar so that when you come in here, you're not coming in cold, that you come in with some sense of familiarity with the story as we dig into it. Now, if you download that reading plan or if you grab a copy of that reading plan in association with the readings, there also are some questions that are attached to it. And I would encourage you to process those questions. Maybe process those questions with another person. Might be a great opportunity for you to actually go through this plan with another person. Uh, maybe your spouse, maybe someone in your family. Uh, maybe go through it with the person you came with, if you came with a friend. Maybe someone from your life group, right? If you're not in a life group, get in a life group and then maybe get connected with somebody and read through that. But that'll be an awesome way to keep us all kind of engaged in this narrative together. The next five weeks, it's gonna be great. Let's pray together. Lord, I just wanna say thank you so much for your words to us this morning. Thank you for preserving this story for us, God. We, 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 uh, God, I'm convinced um, that this is not just some antiquated narrative about some guy a long time ago. But Father, you've preserved this because it's your word and that the narrative of Joseph has the, has the power to transform our perspective and to help us see as you see. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people who are not dictated and defined by our external circumstances, not blown and tossed by uh, the changing circumstances that we face in our life, God. If that's the case, if, we're, if we are defined and if we are defeated by our circumstances, then we are always a slave to them. That our joy and our fulfillment and our character and our convictions are all contingent on whether or not things are going good or not. That's no way to live. So God, would you help us to be people who, uh, who live as thermostats, people who are, have character and conviction that outlasts our circumstances, that survives regardless of what external circumstances might be. Would you use your word? Would you use this series? Would you use it by your spirit to transform our hearts? So we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.